0: take a knee take a seat grab a brew and listen in this is the reorg podcast happy new year and welcome back for another episode of the real podcast the first one for 2021. This episode's guest is Matthew Maynard, who served 20 years, 16 of that with the Devonshire and Dorsets, uh, the, rest of the the last four with when they amalgamated into the rifles. We go and talk into his three tours of Northern Ireland, his tour of Bosnia, Sierra Leone, two tours of Iraq, in which we uh, talk about when he was the OC and he faced several mental health-ish uh, obstacles with his, with his troops. So yeah, so there is some technical issues with just through recording over Skype, you may hear that my voice doesn't sound, it's sometimes the technical glitches, but just bear that in mind. The uh, majority of it is good <laughs> and I can only apologise. So here it is. I hope you enjoy. All right. And here we are. Um, Matt, if you'd like to give introduce yourself, uh, where you're from, where you grew up and when you joined the army, etc.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, Dave. Um, very good of you to ask me to have a chat. It's a real privilege. Um, so name is Matt Maynard. Uh, I'm now pushing 50. Um, but, uh, like all of us, I was young once. So I did 20 years as an infantry officer, um, joined back in 92. Um, and so my career spanned most of the conflicts that, you know, the army took part in over that time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, yeah, left in 2012 um, for for various reasons. I'll touch on that later. Um, I was um, I'm not really from anywhere in particular. I was an I was an army brat, so yeah, I come from a military family. So we moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my my sort of home, if you like, is probably Dorset down in the West Country. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, we spent a reasonable amount of time living there, and that's where I went to school. Mm-hmm. So um, that would be where I class myself from. Um, and, um, yeah, so how I ended up in the army, yeah, it's good, <laughs> it's a good question. So I would, I would have to just like out myself here and say that I am, I'm am what you could call a typical army officer. All right. Um, now I've been conditioned by lots of politicians for a long time to be quite guilty about this, but I, I'm, I'm not, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, my, I'm third generation army officer. My dad was an officer. My grandfather was an officer. Um, I was very lucky. I went to a private school, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I, I, to be honest, I never really wanted to do anything else, right. Um, I, I cannot remember not wanting to be a soldier. Um, so it was always a bit of a done deal, really. Um, as I say, i don't I don't feel embarrassed about my background. Um, there's not lots of sure. generations of blokes like me who've given pretty good service to the country. yeah. Um, And, you know, if I do count myself very lucky to come from my background and when you come into the army, when you join a regiment, you know, I mean, if there's two ways you can play, isn't there? You can either just be yourself and people can take you as they find you or you can try and be someone you're not. Um, (laughs) I'm sure you'd agree, Dave. Soldiers will pick up pretty quickly on an officer that's trying to be someone they're not. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I hope my background didn't put anybody off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, when I when I got to, I guess my sort of uh, my senior school, my my public school, and you had to think a bit more seriously about joining the army, as I know a couple of your officer um, guys have touched on before. It's a it's a very strange, unique. It is unique in my experience in the British Army. You you've got to pick a regiment at the same time that you join the army. Right. So. My my course was fairly straightforward. I knew I wanted to be an infantryman. Mm -hmm. Never wanted to be anything else. Mm -hmm. I think I may have just like briefly looked at the Royal Marines, but um, I I was more Army to be honest, and I wasn't a Marine. So I went to school in Dorset. Devonshire and Dorset Regiment was my local lot. There was a sort of charming bloke who used to come around the schools and talk about the regiment. So he arranged me a visit. Um, back in those days, you know, it, it seems. Oh, you, you might probably remember them from your time, but like teenage blokes used to come out of school and university and come and visit the regiment as potential officers. Yeah. In, in badly fitting suits with all their acne and all the rest <laughs> of it, and t- try and fit in. Um, yeah. You feel pretty silly most of the time, I have to say. But um, no, I t- did three visits to Devon Dorsets, including one where all I did was arrive on night one dig a trench on Salisbury Plain for, you know, 48 hours and then sat in it for a week with three hairy-ass blokes, including a full screw who absolutely beasted me. Uh, (laughs) But it was good, you know, I I liked it. I thought the blokes were great, really liked the officers. And to be honest, I I, I think I'd done a few visits by the time I was 17. I I, I knew I wanted to be a Devon and Dorset almost before I took the entrance process to the army. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Uh, what I did in fact do again quite unusual that there's another sort of funny little officer um, sort of little known fact there's a thing called army scholarship where you can go along when you're about 16 and you do your army officer interviews at that age Um, and you go for your you know your tests and your interviews and your command tasks and your essay writing and all this kind of stuff And if you pass, they give you what's called an army scholarship and it's towards your sixth form education. Mm -hmm. It basically gives you a a guaranteed regular commission as an officer, which is basically a job for life. I mean, it's absolutely absolutely ridiculous. Um, I can't think of any other profession that would do that. But uh, yeah, so um, I I did. I entered for that and I was lucky enough to get one. So age 16, I pretty much had my um, I had my place at Sandhurst, provided I passed my Mm A-levels. Um, one of the best days of my life, if I'm if I'm being honest with you, Dave, like me and my best mate, who also joined the same regiment, he and I got our news on the same day that we both got an army scholarship. I remember, you know, we just felt like kings. Yeah. <laughs> we really did. You know, yeah. it was awesome. So, so, yeah, that was me then sort of hooked on the hook. Um, and I never really wavered from my choice that I wanted to join the Devon and Dorset. So I looked at a couple of other regiments, including the Fusiliers, actually, who I thought were a good, good bunch of blokes. But I was a Devon and Dorset. And I think the thing I really liked about it, and we'll sort of touch back on this later, you know, it was it's a proper family regiment. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite it's quite easy to achieve that because obviously Devon and Dorset is not a very big area. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: There's only really three main cities, Bournemouth, Plymouth and Exeter. So 90 percent of the blokes come from those three cities, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a smattering of lads from West Dorset and North Devon. So you know you, the guys were they were schoolmates. We had brothers, cousins, fathers, sons, you know uncles, all in the regiment at the same time, mm-hmm. in the battalion, in the first battalion, because obviously only have one battalion, right? So it did. It was it had a very family feeling about it, um, and it's yeah, it's 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 not an exaggeration to say that I mean in in my mind I didn't really join the army. Yeah. I joined. Denshin Dorset Regiment you know what I mean that, yeah, that's yeah. what it felt like um the fact that it happened to be part of the British Army was was very nice but <laughs> yeah that's you know that's how important it was to me and still is
0: yeah
1: so that's uh yeah that's how I sort of got into the whole thing so you're so you
0: um you joining you you got a 16 you got your scholarship to join yeah. to join so I, I was similar but not similar so I I'd still I did my A-levels yeah didn't want to join as an officer. I could have. I didn't. I was like, well, oh, no, I'll just join as a bloke. And then, yeah. obviously, you you knew in order for you to get the scholarship, you had to get your you had to pass your A levels. Whereas I was the opposite yes. spectrum. I was like, fuck this. I don't need my A levels. So I didn't. So I already already had my place. <laughs> I finished my A levels in June, and I start join the army in July. No, yeah, pretty. It was pretty much. I had two. weeks I think I had two weeks off after. So I kind of. And I got my place maybe in in January, I guess. Yeah. So I uh, right, yeah, okay. Pretty much sacked off my last exams, and yeah. I don't know how I passed all my levels because I remember being in training. My mum, my mum rang me up with my A level results, and she was like, "You you bloody passed." I was like, "What do you mean, <laughs> which one of I passed?" She was like, "You passed all of them." I was like, "How?
1: I didn't even study."
0: <laughs> uh, I was yeah, that was that was why?
1: Well i know how you feel because i sort of did that but one stage later mm-hmm. just going to a private school like you know everyone i knew went to university yeah literally the only blokes i know who didn't go to university are the ones who joined the army um because that was still very common then yeah yeah you go and be an officer without having a degree you mm-hmm. still don't need one but most people have one now so um no i i i i feel i feel what you're saying because you know, I had to turn around to my mum. She was a widow but I, and say, hey, look, sorry, I'm not going to university. I'm I'm going straight, going straight to Sandhurst. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, what what need a man like me have a further education? You know, want to get out and start wearing some green. Right. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, yeah, that's exactly what I did. So um, I I was due to because the it was quite funny in those days. It was all very kind of formal. Like the Ministry of Defence wrote to me and because I left school I left school in like um summer ninety. Mm-hmm. And the MOD wrote to me and said, Right, you know, you're in for Santos in January nineteen ninety-one, when I would have been eighteen years old. Uh, you know, eighteen mm-hmm. and a bit. I actually wrote back to them to this MOD. <laughs> I, I, and I had to ask permission to take a gap year, if you can believe it in those days. And I got this very kind of stuffy letter back saying, oh, dear Mr. Maynard, yeah, we've reviewed your case. And yes, we will we will allow you to take a gap year. Um, very good of them. Uh, so they delayed my entrance till January 90, uh, 92, yeah. which did actually give me one year to get out of, you know, to go and see the world a bit before between institutions <laughs> I mean, come out of a boarding school and before going to Santa. So that was that was nice. Enjoyed that.
0: It probably helped you out, you know, going in with a bit of life experience as well. Yeah, but, yeah. It,
1: it did. It did. Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up a bit and just not, not that, not enough, but I
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> saw, saw a bit of the world. So, um, yeah, so I walked into, walked into the um, the Academy on the 6th of January, 92. Um, yep. Yeah, I do. I remember it very well, actually. And it's, it's funny, some of the, you know, when I think back and everyone says this, don't they? But it, it, the army that I joined, it's just, it just felt very different, you know? Mm-hmm. It was properly, right at the end admittedly, but it was the Cold War army. Yeah. It was it was very big, you know, the army's 156,000 then, the regular army, and we're down to what now? 82, I think, yeah. which struggle to man, only like 78,000, so I mean it was a big army. And the old, um, the options for change, Defence Review, hadn't quite kicked in yet. Mm-hmm. And the whole place just like it felt very, you know, traditional and old, yeah. you know, still had regiments. All my instructors were from people like the Gloucesters and the Gordon Highlanders and 17th, 21st Lancers and all this sort of stuff, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, I remember it's it's quite funny looking back now, some of the changes that you and I would know of. Mm-hmm. You know, back in those days, it's, it's little things. I mean, you, you everyone smoked, and you could smoke anywhere. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <Right> in <laughs> classrooms, corridors, yeah. the lot. Um, you know, and a lot of the social changes hadn't happened, so there were very few women around, and yeah. they had their own little training company out in one of the colleges. Never saw them. Mm-hmm. You know, WRAC, Women's Royal Army Corps, still existed. Mm. Um, homosexuality was still illegal. Um, wow. There was yeah, <laughs> there was there was no such thing as compulsory drugs testing, but no it was it was all right. So it was again it was a, a, a slightly different beast back then. Back in ni- in the early nineties, it was very common, as I said, for officers to go in without without degrees. So sixty uh, percent of the officers were non graduates mm-hmm. at Santos. Um, average age in my platoon was nineteen. The average age was nineteen. Uh, <laughs> And a lot, of, to be honest, a lot of us were just boys. You know, yeah. some guys literally just 18. Yeah. Uh, guy in the guy in the room next door to me only had to shave once a week. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, Santos was was all right. I've, if you've ever read a book called um, The Young Officer's Reading Club by Patrick Hennessy, which is very good, um, he described it as Hogwarts with guns, um, <laughs> which has an element of truth about yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I guess, I guess if I had to sort of characterize it, I would say it's, it's all right. It turns you into a reasonable quality soldier who's capable of leading a sort of half decent platoon attack. You yeah. know, um, everything else. Yeah. You know, there's some good stuff and some not so good stuff. Um, yeah. You make a lot of good mates. You do have a lot of fun. Some of it is very hard. I mean, I think of the sort of four or five physically hardest things I've ever done in my life. I would say at least two, probably three of them were at Sandhurst. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: they do beast you. Um, we deserved it, frankly. <laughs> it's a horrible, pimply at least colours.
0: time colour boys and stuff, sergeants can do it then, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was fortunate, actually, my colour sergeant was a fantastic guy, guy called Bob Cooper, Guards, a man that I truly looked up to, you know, really, really professional guy. Yeah. So, um, no, it was it was good. It had sort of ups and downs. I mean, I think there's some quite strange things I look back on. You know, I came out of there after a year. You you just, you don't have any real understanding or very little understanding of, of the sort of wider military. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that the Gulf war had happened one year before, I mean, that was hardly referenced. You know what I mean? So I think if I got some small criticisms of Santos, it it doesn't, it's not very reactive sometimes to, to these changes. And, slightly guilty of sort of group think if you know what i mean yeah so um no i passed out of sandhurst i think was i just 20. i think i would just turned 20. right
2: um
1: so uh i was 19 while i was there mm-hmm. and i was and bounced myself straight out to uh one devon and dorset who were in uh, germany at the time uh mm-hmm. it was a battalion um but when i joined them uh they were just training for to go to west belfast for six months so that was quite. I did, did some of the pre training for West Belfast. And then, uh, as all officers do, had to then go back to Warminster to, to do my um, platoon commander's battle course, mm-hmm. um, which again, I, I won't bang on about because I know a couple of the other officers you've interviewed have mentioned it. But yeah. I, 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 it was all right. Again, very hard work. Um, but again, it's really a bit like Santos, but with better infantry skills. Yeah. Um, And you're treated a little bit more of a grown up as a grown up, but Mm -hmm. not very. (laughs) But no, it was all right. I I came out of there feeling slightly better equipped, uh, which was handy. So, um, yeah. So from Warminster, I I went out to join the battalion in Northern Ireland. They'd already done a couple of months. Um, And uh, this was in 1993. So it was before the first ceasefire. Yeah. Um, And so I did actually just catch the end of the the really sort of active phase of the oh, wow. operation, um, yeah. which I always count myself quite fortunate to have seen it. Actually, it was it was very interesting. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, it's just very briefly on because I won't bang on about it, but what what are the sort of things I remember is is firstly on um, what people might not get is just what is what a big operation it was. Yeah. Um, okay, but at that point it'd been running for twenty five odd years. Um, the, I think at the peak we had 27,000 troops in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, uh, and that was in the 70s. And given the, you know, given the current army is only about 80,000 in total. Yeah. That's a lot of guys. Well, yeah. even, even when I went there, there was 17,000 troops, and that was vast majority um, infantry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very huge infantry heavy heavy operation. Um, and as I'm sure as you you know, and, and people have said, it was. North was probably the best training ground that the British infantry ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really sort of kept us, it really kept our skills honed for those 20, 30 years, um, particularly at the battalion company platoon and team level. And I think more than any other, any other operation I've served in, it was, it was a Lance Jacks and Full Screws operation. Mm-hmm. Because they were out there with their team, you know, a Lance Jack plus three guys, yeah, of course, they, they're on the radio to the multiple and the company and all the rest of it. But what they do on the ground is critical. Mm-hmm. You know, how they interact with the locals, what they do if they come under contact is, you know, seriously important. So mm-hmm. it was a real a corporal's war. Mm-hmm. Um, by sort of 1993, we, we had, I won't say we'd won because that's a very kind of um, difficult phrase to, to define. But we sort of got to the point where the IRA, the Pyra were struggling a little bit to take on the army mm-hmm. with effective attacks because basically a mix of technology protection and, and tactics meant that putting in a really good attack on us was getting quite difficult with the exception of um, the 50 cal sniper that you probably heard about who was operating in South Armagh at the time who'd killed a, a, quite a number of British soldiers mm. Sort of single shot sniper shoots very unpleasant. But apart from that, um, you know, Pyra were struggling a little bit, and in fact, political talks were already starting at that point to initiate the peace process. But uh, no, it was it was quite an interesting time. Um, uh, I mean, uh, the uh, the battalion was was sort of laid down around West Belfast, with a headquarters in North Howard Street Mill. My company was in a place called Fort White Rock, out in what right out in West Belfast, between sort of nestling between some of these real, really minging, sink Republican housing estates. You know, you've probably heard some of the names like Bally Murphy, Turf Lodge, Anderson's Town, places like that, yeah, and they yeah. were minging uh, and they were hardline Republican, you know, you, you and as you've seen on all, all and you've heard before and seen all the documentaries and stuff, you know, you walk down the street, you'd be spat at, you'd yeah. be verbally abused, um, you know, have old nappies thrown at you, use tampons, um you know all, all this kind of stuff S- saw it all kids kids throw stones the whole time um very very sort of strange place to be walking around you know in, in almost in sort of internet age europe yeah, with yeah. A gun and you're walking around a <laughs> european city with this kind of stuff it felt a bit surreal um so uh yeah and the the uh the enemy pyro they they were still pretty capable you know they they try and get in a, an attack on you i suppose they do a A pretty, uh, a pretty serious attack every, once every sort of week, ten days, either a shoot or an improvised hand grenade or an IED or something across the city. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So they were still pretty busy. Of course, the really random thing was you'd see them every day, and because we knew them all so well, you get you you'd get montages of slides before you deploy, and the blokes would learn their faces, and you'd see them outside Tesco's, you know, know, and and you'd have some blokes in your platoon called Chatters (laughs) Up, right? and maybe they just they'd natter to him they'd go, all right mickey yeah you haven't taken us on recently and he'd be like no yeah no mate yeah we're running a bit low on rpgs or something <laughs> it's really random existence yeah. um and it was uh, yeah good it was good good sort of routine you know good infantry stuff you, you do like days number of days patrolling and then nights patrolling bit of qrf got base guarding bit of resting um it's quite hard graft you know opposite on patrols you could do sort of three four longish patrols in a 24-hour period every time every time a policeman walked out to go to do his beat you'd have a minimum of four teams so 16 soldiers around him um to secure him otherwise they'd have just been well murdered basically um and uh yeah, we had a we had a reasonably busy time. There were some big incidents while we were there. The, um, the Shankill bomb happened while we were there, which was a very unfortunate incident, quite famous. It was a bomb in a chip shop, killed nine people on the Shankill Road. Um, and actually, that the night of the Shankill bomb, that is that's the first night I came I I came under fire. Right, right. So my my multiple was actually contacted that night uh, because we were patrolling down the Spring Hill Road, which was. One of the sort of fault lines between the Catholics and the Protestant estates ran straight through the middle of our AO, and uh, you know I was there, kind of plodding along with my with my team, and we had about three or four satellite teams out, and then you know all of a sudden the old crack thumps start rattling out, and <laughs> you sort of think, oh shit, 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 I'm under fire, I'm under fire, and you know you're fumbling like an idiot, aren't you, the first time, and you kind of shut yourself on the ground. And, the, and then the shots die away, right? And then you're feeling slightly ridiculous because you're there like under a streetlight. It's like, oh, shit, shit. So, so you, you leopard crawl out of the street light in some shadow. And then, you know, an old granny walks past giving you a bit of a strange look. Uh, <laughs> and at the same time, you're trying to gabble a contact report and all the blokes are shouting and you're trying to make your weapon ready and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so, come honest, it's a bit of an anti-climax, but we, we did know, where we, we could pretty much guess where the shots were coming from because the satellite teams had picked them up and it and but I'm they were coming from inside probably inside a Protestant estate and mm-hmm. um they were they they were in a serious you know head of steam after the Shankill bomb that day and we'd basically been told to stay out of that estate um and so I had to make the very very difficult decision not to follow up on that shoot which was the right thing to do although my team commanders were absolutely furious with me yeah. um but it would have been the wrong the wrong move they probably weren't trying to kill us. They were probably just putting rounds over our heads to say, stay out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I only mentioned that as just, a, you know, that's, that was my first time under fire. Very, very inglorious. <laughs> and um, like all things, good bit of military farce with, you know, people in West Belfast just wandering along the road, looking at you, you know, coming back from the chip shop. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd, rather than just sort of bang on about and all that, I mean, I think the the lessons and the kind of themes that I took away from that was, it was it was a, it was a really good grounding in infantry work. You know, I, I wasn't a very good young officer to be quite honest at that point. I was too young. I was too, I wasn't confident enough in myself. Um, but I was very lucky. I had some great team commanders, um, and it was a really good grounding in infantry work, right. patrolling skills. You know, all the real nitty gritty basic stuff that makes us as good as we are right and also sort of multiple level drills and how to move properly and deception and all you know and good stuff like not retracing your steps over the same route and varying and unpredictability and all this kind of stuff and i sort of mentioned that because that will come back later
2: yeah
1: um for iraq Uh, and it was i some of that experience was vital for for, for me for my development for later on um i think the second thing i remember about northern miners is, is a very good grounding for working operations amongst the people mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah um because apart from the falklands arguably and gulf one every operation that we've done and as you will know we're we're amongst the people you're mm-hmm. literally walking <laughs> through the population and it's not all nice and neat lines of tanks like world war ii and you know billiard top terrain and all that and it just blasting each other it's a lot more complicated yeah, yeah. and to, to have had those lessons about you know and the ability to actually stand at a street corner and talk to people who might hate you or they might like you uh, and just to get that idea that you're operating in amongst normal people who actually just want to live their lives and just to have that you know it's to have partly have that element of humanity it was really important so that was a good lesson And the third thing was, and again this uh, this cropped up a few more times in my career, is this idea of um, there was a lot of routine in Northern Ireland and the British Army definitely got into habits. You know, everything we do, like six month tour lengths, R and R, a lot of our basing issues, you know, it's all come from Northern Ireland. And sometimes that serves us quite well, and sometimes it doesn't actually, um, because as you know, as we try to keep that model through our in afghanistan that really really strained the system um and i think that that sometimes has been less helpful Mm. um yes that was that was northern ireland so just just going on um
0: just going on your when you come onto contact yeah that's the first so you know one thing i really want to get into is is, it's how it makes people feel and you know you were what's you were 20 at the time yeah 20 and and you were two commander of you know, twenty eight, thirty blokes. Yeah. Um. Obviously, you're you you've got men around you that are, are older, um. Yeah. You know, section commanders, probably older than you, two sergeant. Definitely, yeah. Um. But how how was how was that the first time you that happened to you? You know, how how were you? You know, you like you said, you you fumbled around and like like everyone does the first time, but yep. you know, you're. <laughs> know I'm not I'm not you know what were the rules of engagement then as it were for for yourself but also how how did you how did you feel about it like coming back in you know shit you know that was your life on the line you knew it was you joined the army you knew it was going to happen but
1: yeah no it's it's a good question Dave I I mean I think on that particular occasion um, I I, to be honest it, it all happened so quickly I didn't I didn't really get a chance. I didn't get a chance to feel frightened. I don't actually remember feeling frightened. I think what I did feel was, you know, a certain element of of confusion and, you know, holy shit, and I've got to do something. Um, It was quite nice to see it, to feel that the training kind of kicked in for for me personally and and for all the teams and everyone was doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing and they all hard targeted, got in cover, you know, made ready. Um, I think, you know, what I was really thinking about right from the off was getting a contact report out, which is very important in Northern Ireland because because it's such a close, it's such a tight, it's such a, um, a, a sort of tight operation geographically. If you can get a contact report out with what we call a steer, by roughly where you think the shots came from, there's so many troops around that you can actually get people in behind them very quickly and, and have a good chance of cutting them off. Yeah, because the whole city was like drenched with troops and and the, the radio nets were set up so that you you know you, so and so that's that's very important. so I was, I was working on that. And then once you got that out, then you start thinking about right, what my team's doing? where are they, you know, are we going to follow up? And actually that did kind of kick in fairly naturally. I think once I realized that this particular instance, once I realized that those shots were coming from the Protestant area, I, I had a chat with about a chat about it with my team commanders on on the radio to decide what we were going to do. And there was a bit of difference of opinion, but I then had to say, right, if it's coming from in the Spring Hill estate, we're not going in. Um, which, as I said, was not a particularly popular decision because everyone wanted to get stuck in. but um, I think once that decision taken, you know you then send a follow-on contact report and and the old, the old, the adrenaline starts to to reduce again. and when you know you're not actually, you're probably not going to be contacted again. You sort of get up and carry on with what you're doing. And then, and then afterwards, yeah, a bit, sort of, uh, and, and you start to calm down a bit. And I think, I think once once we'd sort of got back and, and we were back in the base and we'd unloaded and everyone just having a quick debrief, um, I, I, I guess I just, for, for a little bit, I thought, ooh, yeah, blimey, okay. Um, that could have been a bit dangerous. Uh, I think I, because I understood that it was probably Protestant paramilitaries firing at us, they probably didn't want to kill us, which kind of makes you feel a bit better. Um but I definitely as an officer you do sort of feel, oh you know, right, you know, did I do the right thing? You know, the blokes were all looking at me, I'm brand new, did I make an arse of myself? You know, you do you do feel that a lot. Um (laughs) and and it's um, you know, the RV being what it is, and because you're out on a patrol base on your own, there's no one there to sort of pat you on the back and say, Oh, what a map, that was textbook, mate. Well done. So you just you have to just you know, take 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 your sort of self confidence and just get on with it. So um yeah. No, it, it was all right. Nice. and um, I do
0: See, do you get an echo? There's a little echo when I talk. I wonder what that is.
1: Uh no, I'm 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 hearing you fine, actually. Mm,
0: all right. Hopefully it's just my feedback. <laughs> um and then your next you went to so you've you finished you did this six month or in Northern Ireland. Yeah, and you pushed on to Bosnia.
1: Yes, that's right. So we bounced back to Germany. We had to do a reconversion package back into the to the Warriors because right. obviously it's it's a big change. Mm-hmm. Even, even if you take a year out from Warrior, it's, there's a lot to be done to get everyone back up to skills. So um, it was about six months worth a year. In fact, sorry, of um, reconversion to Warrior, and then we were on the roster to go to Bosnia. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, Bosnia was uh, May '95. And I know you've chatted to a couple of guys about Bosnia. Um, so the war was still on at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ceasefire wasn't until the back end of '95, and uh, the war had been going on since '92. And uh, you had—I won't go into the, the detail too much—but you know, in central Bosnia, you had the Bosnian Serbs, the Bosnian Muslims, and the Bosnian Croats, basically tearing ten bells of shit out of each other. All right, the Croats and the Muslims in central Bosnia it were largely at peace with each other and had even got a sort of informal alliance going, but it was mainly the Serbs versus the Bosnians. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had the you had the UN Protection Force, UNPROFOR, uh, who were overlaid over the whole thing, which was a bit of a anomaly because if basically they were a peacekeeping force with no peace to keep, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's just a war going on. Yeah, um, And so they were largely doing like humanitarian aid monitoring, Sort of you know low level patrolling, but were frankly not achieving very much. And, and the interesting thing about '95 was there was a bit of a tipping point coming, because the Serbs were besieging um, what were they called the safe safe havens or safe areas, which was a chain of about five cities, including Sarajevo, out in sort of eastern Bosnia, places like um, Srebrenica, Zepa, Sarajevo, um, and a couple of others. And uh, it was clear that in that summer, something was going to have to give, right? Either the Serbs were going to have to be given a beating with a stick, probably by NATO, or they stood a chance of overrunning these safe havens. Okay, so something was probably going to give in the summer of '95. So that's the kind of, that was the back. And again, I, I, won't, I won't sort of bang on and on and on about it. I'll just give you a couple of sort of vignettes about it, um, just to like paint a picture. Um, because we went in there, with, you know, with white vehicles and blue helmets and all that. And yeah. for the first bit of the tour, we were doing just normal UN-type stuff. Um, but basically, in in sort of uh, June, July, the Serbs stepped up their offensives around Sarajevo and particularly Srebrenica. Um, and in one particularly awful incident, which you you may well have heard of. They they actually overran the town of Srebrenica, uh, where uh, Bosnian Muslims lived uh, and was protected normally by the UN. It was actually a Dutch battalion who, um, unfortunately, very controversial decision, but they stood aside and let the Serbs in. And the Serbs then proceeded to massacre every single man and boy of military age over the next three days. estimates vary, but it's between seven and eight thousand males were exterminated. Um, And that is, well, it was pretty, fairly unique in scale, but in terms of, you know, viciousness and the, just the horrible things that people did to each other there, you know, that level of atrocity was, was not uncommon. It was uniquely, unique in scale, but the things that these people used to do to each other was just horrific. And that, combined with some renewed attacks on Sarajevo, I and mean, in one particular very nasty mortar attack on the town, which killed a large number of people, the, the UN and NATO and the international community decided to act. So, what happened was they they, um, they they sort of got a NATO force in place, which is which is largely air power. Um, and they combined it with a force on the ground called the multinational, well, it was called the Rapid Reaction Force, but part of it was a multinational brigade, which was our battle group and a French Foreign Legion battle group, some Dutch Marines, British artillery and a British uh, recce squadron and some engineers and all the rest of it. And we we kind of re-sprayed from white to green and we were retrained as a kind of warfighting force, which is all very exciting. Um, <laughs> and we had to go up into the hills and, you know, dig, dig out trenches and make free, make live firing ranges and do this kind of transition to war package, which is, it's all great. Um, and we were then sort of used as a, I mean, it was, to be honest, it was more of a, we were a PR tool. So the 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 the, the, uh, the chain of command was using us as a, as a sort of a threat to the Serbs um, to say, right, look, do this, i.e. withdraw from Sarajevo or whatever, or you're going to be hit by these blokes in a nutshell which was, um, it was good good in sort of PR terms, it was quite frustrating for us because we were sat around waiting to do something and we must have been stood up and stood down for like 10, 15 operations. Um, finally, what they did do with us was uh, we deployed, the whole multinational brigade deployed to Mount Igman around Sarajevo to get ourselves in position and to get mainly the artillery and the mortars into position to hit Serb targets uh, who were dug in around Sarajevo. Um, and what, what actually transpired is in August, NATO launched this thing called Operation Deliberate Force, which was to break the siege of Sarajevo effectively. And that was a, um, a, uh, an air, a series of, of quite heavy air attacks on Serb positions and the artillery and mortars that we were based with on Mount Igman firing onto Serb targets to basically give them a good smash for about 48, 72 hours to get them to pull back, withdraw their heavy weapons and get to the negotiating table. Um, And yeah, so that was what we were involved in that operation. And that was, you know, I highlight it's quite interesting. That was the first time that we as soldiers, certainly I as an officer, saw the whole kind of orchestra of war going on, Mm -hmm. because we'd we'd be there in OPs or on our trenches with the old artillery crashing out from behind and aircraft screaming in overhead. And you look down the valley, and there's a Serb barracks that you've been watching for a few days. And a couple of J dams from plane, you know, jets would hit it, and that's it, obliterated. You know, it's just there's just a massive smoking hole in the ground where that where that position was. Um and it, that was interesting and and quite sobering. Um now, in terms of danger. We weren't we weren't actually in a huge amount of danger because again, although the Serbs were a bit were pretty angry, they weren't really in a position to get at us. Mm. And they were really more interested in fighting each other, you know, in Bosnia. that the threat to the Brits was never that high, or the threat to the UN. We did have casualties and we did have firefights. Not not my company actually, but a couple of the other companies got in some quite big firefights. But um we uh we weren't too involved um it, sorry we we didn't face too much threat from the locals yeah,
2: yeah.
1: um which is the interesting thing really about the balkans um and as you know we then uh, well the serbs did come to negotiate negotiating table after a week or so of getting pounded by nato air and artillery and a peace deal was brokered and then a massive nato force came in at the back end of 95 and stayed there for a number of years and and uh, there were then operations in Kosovo and Macedonia. So, so the, you know, the army was committed to the Balkans for a very long time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what did I sort of take away from it, really? I mean, the, in terms of, you know, the mental health aspect, which is what we're talking about, it wasn't too bad. I, I certainly wouldn't say that, uh, you know, there was any trauma or sort of involved or certainly not enough trauma to bring on sort of blokes to to make uh to to affect blokes mental health Mm -hmm. i think for a tour like that is more the frustration you know Um, it's it's having to live together we probably lived out the back of the warriors for about three and a half four months out of the six or in trenches or in very sort of austere conditions and you know having the blokes together for that long unpredictable lifestyle you know there's none of this routine that you have in northern ireland or play where you you know you're going to go back to your patrol base at the end of the day you know you're going to get your r and r you know you're going to get your phone cards each week you know there was none of that um so the frustration level was quite high um but out of that was you know i personally again found some quite useful lessons just that business of blokes living in the field for that long Mm -hmm. in quite austere conditions quite quite interesting um and again it reinforced to me this idea of um in order to be in order to keep agile you know in order to keep that mentality of being able to move around and do stuff it's it's difficult if you're going to anchor yourself to a nice comfy security force base or whatever (coughs) comes harder and i saw that again in the future Um, and so yeah bosnia was a a bit of a strange one really Um, As as an interesting sort of aside, I think the time we spent in the Balkans, so this is now a big block of time from the mid-90s or early 90s, almost a decade really, um, until the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it was quite a bad time for the army. Um, The Americans have got an expression that they, they went into Korea with a bad army and came out with a good one. And they went into Vietnam with a good army and came out with a bad one I wouldn't say that we went into the Balkans with a good army and came out with a bad army we we didn't but over that 10 years I can't help this is a purely personal view I can't help feeling that we did lose our edge a little bit particularly that 30 years of skills that we would built up in Northern Ireland um, because you know the threat was low to us yeah generally speaking they weren't trying to kill us um, we did have casualties, absolutely, and this, that is not to take away from from those guys, um, but we had a lot more casualties of what you normally have, you know, suicide, road traffic collisions, all the normal stuff. Um, so the threat to us was low. We had literally tens of thousands of guys doing quite boring stuff, quite boring, quite repetitive, you know, not great for morale. Um still had quite a lot of alcohol floating around, you know, and we just, we weren't, we weren't having to keep our skills sharp. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and as, as a sort of, as a kind of coincidence in the late nineties, that is also when a lot of these quite, uh, or these more modern aspects started coming into life, like, you know, health and safety policies, litigation, risk aversion, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Right, in the early nineties, that that kind of stuff was still very uh, not in its infancy. Yeah, by the late nineties, that kind of stuff was embedded fully in the army. And I just, it's it's hard for me to uh, not to draw the conclusion that over that ten years, we did lose our edge a little bit. And I personally, I personally saw that I think in Iraq in the early days. Yeah, so that was the Balkans. Bit of bit of a funny one. Bit of a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, but yeah. it's is the old you know the same, same. when oh, I can
0: really hear myself. Hopefully it doesn't come up on the recording. <laughs> um well when you're I guess when you're at peace you become soft. Yeah. You know, when there's no threat to you, you, you become soft. And and with the Iraq and Afghan, you look at you look at the British army and British military in two thousand and twelve to fifteen probably one of the most battle-hardened <laughs> and, and highly trained military
1: yeah
0: in in the world yeah um but that's because we were at war in iraq and afghan for 10-15 years but you've you go before yeah. that when we we're in the balkans and it was a bit northern Ireland. you know the ceasefire had happened and yeah. the balkans was we were there for a while but it was not really a credible. you know it wasn't much threat to us and there was a lot of drinking you know i've heard yeah. a lot of stories of <laughs> I've heard stories of people getting pissed and swapping uniforms with the Serbians and, and all that good stuff, you know. Yeah. And,
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, <laughs> that was the least of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, um, I'm 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 pretty sure there's one story of one of one of the lads actually swapped his weapon with the Serbian and had, they had to, they had to basically bribe the Serbian back the Serbs back for oh, for I'm the.
1: Sure. I'm I'm sure yes. no it's some right some right high jinx used to be got up to there yeah yeah no i mean it's it's a it's fair one i I mean i'm i i was just it did it just really struck me um how that sort of corporate operational knowledge from northern ireland how quickly we brain dumped it um and i think i think sadly the balkans accelerated that process i think we'd have retained it better if we were just doing our normal training cycles Mm -hmm. back in the uk you know what i mean I think yeah. the Balkans sort of eroded it um because it was a completely different skill set and without the threat there yeah I think we I think we lost the age slightly anyway I'd say but p- purely personal view um yeah. and no no disrespect to people who did a lot of time there because we did do some good stuff there but yeah I'll, I'll come back to that in Iraq. Yeah and then after you did
0: the you did the Balkans um yeah you went back to Northern Ireland yeah. <laughs> and that was, yeah, was that much different, or was, was, that was yeah, a lot it? Yeah, it
1: was a lot different. And, and George, I won't talk too much about it because I, to cut a long story short, I did I did four years back to back there right. um, because I did two residential tours back to back. And mm-hmm. um, it, the the battalions in Northern Ireland, you either went there for six months, rule tours as as you and I are familiar with from later operations. But we had we had quite a large number of infantry battalions on residential tours, which means, of course, that you move there with lock, stock and barrel, or the families, everyone moves and live in these big camps behind the wire. Um, And the idea was that you'd have probably one company, one operations, one company doing guards, one company doing training and one company on leave. And you do that cycle basically for two, four way cycle for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did, uh, I was the operations officer, I was attached actually to the Worcestershire, Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters in Omar for two years. And then I came back to my own battalion as the adjutant um, in Ballykinler mm-hmm. for two years. Um, yeah, it's it's to be honest, in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of actual front end operational experience and mental health and stuff, I've not too much to say about it. Um, it was uh, it was it was an interesting time. It was an interesting time in the campaign because the obviously the ceasefire was in place by then. The distant Republicans campaign was still running. And so and that brought some challenges with it. But we were we were drawing down you know we were demilitarizing and that was yeah. that was ongoing and to be honest a lot of it was just keeping the units keeping some sort of cohesion for the units making sure the blokes weren't you know going to rack and ruin because it was getting a bit boring by the mm. end keeping busy building but just get trying to get back to a more normal battalion life yeah? yeah where you're doing your training you're doing your sport you're doing your adventure training that that was that was a lot of a lot of emphasis on that towards the latter end. Um, so it was um, no, it was a use. for me personally, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Pretty bad for your love life. Yeah. Um, four years back to back. Yeah. I, I was still very much a, a bachelor by the time I left North. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you did a Sierra
0: Leone? Was that in between the yes. North islands? So yes, how, how oh, was that's that? right. I was
1: so desperate not not to do <laughs> four years on the trot. I managed to get a slot in Sierra Leone after I finished in Oman before I went to Ballykinla, which um, which was great. I was really pleased, actually, to get it because it was quite an interesting time in Sierra Leone. The, the, the war had finished not long before and uh, the country was getting sort of getting back on its feet. And, and we had a lot of the, the sort of uh, the rebuilding process for the country was in full swing. And we had a lot of Brits embedded all around the government, all around the state and, of course, in the military, in the army. Um, And we had a full kind of military, a Brit military chain of command down from a senior officer who was advising the Ministry of Defence all the way down through the the sort of the army headquarters and then the brigades out in the field. And I was posted to um, something called IMAT, which was International Military Advisory and Training Team. Uh, And we had small teams of guys at the brigade and battalion levels out in the the cuds, out in the jungle. So the headquarters was in Freetown in Sierra Leone, um, of the defense forces. But we, we worked out in the countryside basically, um, and, and it was a pretty crazy place. Uh, it's, you know, I don't know if you've done much time in Africa, but it's they they, they I love Africa, it's fantastic. But they are crazy dudes there, mm-hmm. um, absolutely crazy dudes. Uh, that the threat was. There was a threat, it was mainly from Liberia, which is next door, because their civil war was still ongoing. And what, what would happen is the rebels in Liberia, lured rebels, they were called, would come in Sierra Leone, uh, move up Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone territory to outflank the enemy, and then go back into Liberia. Right. And actually my, the battalion I was advising was based along the Liberian border, and, and that was our main threat. And we, 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 we were authorized to engage them and, and open fire and stuff because they were effectively invading the country. Um, and the Lord rebels were quite unpleasant people. So that's that was a sort of enemy threat. But to be honest, the main threat was, you know, health. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's uh, the Victorians called it sort of white man's danger. Um it is just every every horrible disease known to man uh lives in West Africa. Mm. And there's just like in those jungles, there is nothing cuddly. Right. I mean everything either wants to eat you or give you malaria. It's um, <laughs> And you, yeah, you know, I have never been so careful about my health as I was there. You know, you take your, you take your um, lariam, you, you spray your clothes with insect repellent, you use your mozzie nets, you roll your sleeves down and trousers down, you know, long trousers at night, and all, all that stuff. Yeah. Really important. Uh, I mean, I was with a Sierra Leone battalion and, of about 900, and they would have they would probably have one guy die each week, I would yeah. say each at at least a week if if not perhaps a fortnight but you know certainly two three guys a month would just die of all the horrible stuff that that they get That's the local guys so yeah the health was pretty challenging Um, and so I had um, I was a battalion advisor and I had a Canadian warrant officer and basically what they do is they give you an AK-47 each a white Land Rover um, an HF radio that doesn't work very well um, a month's worth of compo and they say right there's there's your battalion lads go and sort it out um which was and, and in, in many ways <laughs> apart from apart from commanding company which is is the best job it was one of the best jobs i had in the army yeah because it was a two-day drive from from freetown go out through the brigade headquarters which was about a day's drive another day's drive down the battalion um i lived in literally a mud hut there was no electricity no running water no no toilets um, no internet, no no, nothing, um, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean, you had to you'd charge the HF radio on, from the vehicle uh, and you'd book in, with you'd, you'd call brigade headquarters once a day, um, you'd read, read books by candlelight in the evening, um, that was it and apart from that all you had to do was your job which is you know get around the battalion area, It would take about two days to drive around the battalion area um, you know do do things like um, mini junior NCO training so take jungle patrols out, Using the junior NCOs as troops to help get them trained up, advising the company commanders, helping the battalion staff with kind of logistics and operations and stuff. And my connected warrant officer used to beast them on um, admin and logistics, at which I need hardly say they were absolutely useless. Um, <laughs> so it was a it was a fantastic job. Um, I can't I can't say you know there's any there's too much direct relevance to um, uh, you know what we're talking about on the sort of combat and mental health side. Um, we used to, we used to, it was fun, it was exciting. We used to probably put in an ambush whenever we went out on these jungle patrols. We put in an ambush on the jungle tracks that the the rebels used to use. Um, probably do that at least once a fortnight, once every three weeks, with the with the um, the Sierra Leone troops. Um, no, we never, we never had to spring an ambush, um, for which actually, to, if I'm being honest, I'm quite glad. Um, yeah. <laughs> sort of clearing up after that kind of thing, I think would have been quite unpleasant and lots of political ramifications and all the rest of it. So I'm quite glad we never actually sprung an ambush. But um, no, it was good fun, challenging, um, but not not too relevant on what, what what we're talking about. I think I think the only really interesting lesson I took away from it, which I think is as relevant now to vets, particularly if they leave the military, you know, you, we're, we're very used to being given nice clear in the army you normally get nice clear detailed direction don't you get a mission get your orders you know everything's laid out for you you know pretty much what you're doing hmm. i mean on that job we didn't it was literally the boss said look matt sorry we haven't got lots of orders and mission statements and all that nonsense he said that's the area over there it's not very secure that's the battalion they're pretty shit. get in there and make it better <laughs> and um and actually, of course, in some ways you think, oh well, that's, come on, that's no good. I want a proper set of orders. But actually, you know, in many ways it's great because mm. you can use your imagination. And that, funny enough, that is something I've also found in civil life is that very often you assume that your bosses know exactly what you're doing, and, and you assume they know how you want, how sorry, how they want you to do it. But actually, of course, in many cases that's not that's not how it works. And your bosses will expect you. I've I've noticed in civil life to use maximum initiative and just get on with it. You know, and, and only, only approach them if you really need some urgent clarification. Mm. But um no, that was that was a good lesson I took away from there. I don't know if I don't know if that's been any of your I don't know if you've had that experience with uh, <laughs> slightly woolly direction, let's say
0: No, well I mean even even just the experience to go out there and Living in a mud hut and no internet. I mean, were you single at the time? You probably would have been after.
1: Yeah, do you know what? I did actually have a girlfriend. She was quite patient. Um, yeah, you could just about get email when you went back to Freetown, which was about once every four or five weeks. Other than that, it was Blueys. Oh, and in fact, a Canadian bloke, he had a sat phone, which he let me use once a fortnight. So I used to call them, call the girlfriend. Yeah, no, she stuck with me actually. Yeah, you're right though. Surprising. <laughs> yeah, more, more surprising cause it was me. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> and you, yeah. you were a, what, a captain at this time? No, uh,
1: I was uh, captain acting major. Acting major, yeah, acting major. Okay. To give me a bit of, to give me a bit of status in front of the uh, the local officers. Yeah. Yeah, and and then, you then,
0: deployed twice to Iraq after that.
1: Yeah.
0: How how was, so before we go into Iraq you've you've done three tours of Northern Ireland.
1: Yeah.
0: Bosnia, Sierra Leone. Um, yeah. This was all, so Sierra Leone was 2001 is that right? This,
1: uh, yeah to, uh, early 2002 I think. Right okay. Yeah.
0: So, so just, just briefly obviously you were, you were full-on head, you know, your your feet were well into the military at this point. And then 2001 yeah. happens, uh, September 11. Yeah. How, how was that? Um. You know, I've, I've asked to, you know, probably bore a lot of people about it, but I want to get it from your point of view. You know, you're already yeah. well embedded in the military now. Yeah. And your, uh, and then 2001 happens. Yeah. How, how was your mindset then? Did did that change, or did that, you know, did that want make you want to stay in the stay in the army longer, or did did you just kind of roll with it? And...
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, what a great question. Um. Yeah, I think it, I think it did. Um, I remember it was a pretty interesting time. I remember 9-11. Obviously, we all remember where we were, but I was in the Show Foresters. when we saw it on the news. And I distinctly remember one of the company commanders went, right, lads, well, it's about, about to become quite an interesting time to be in a green suit. Um, yeah, and he was pretty right, wasn't he? Um, I thought, yeah, I remember a lot of us thinking then, right, okay, things are going to get pretty interesting now. Right, well, then obviously the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan took place, but that didn't, obviously that didn't affect a lot of the army initially in 2001 too. And mm. the invasion of Iraq happened. And I remember actually uh, by that time I was in Ballykinla, that was pretty controversial, right? Um, I know it was controversial in the country, but I remember even in my officer's mess in, D- in the D&Ds, some quite big arguments about it. There, I'd say the mess was split about half and half whether it was the you know the right thing to do i can remember a couple of blokes almost coming to blows about it actually um pissed obviously mm. um, but um no i think for me personally knowing that knowing that we were going to have these big operations running for the next what well, i think most of us knew it was going to be at least a 10 years or so mm. no that very that very much uh, you know infused me um, as you've correctly pointed out, my love life was fairly pathetic, um, and uh, and I was still a single man, not married, um, and not actually having much an in intention to get married at that stage. So you know, yeah, I was still I was still young, free and single. Really, you know, I, I was looking forward to being a company commander because all infantry officers really look forward to being a company commander, and I was yeah, I was raring to go. I was um, I, I was determined. To set myself up so you know ideally i would hopefully command a company in iraq
2: mm-hmm.
1: this was before afghanistan kicked off in a big yeah, way yeah. this is pre-06 so yeah no i was uh, i was i was keen to get stuck in and then and you, you before you deployed as a as an oc
0: you deployed as part of the were you attached to the us is that right or was it the other way around
1: Sort of. yeah i had a bit of a funny tour actually I, when i finished in ballykinler you know, obviously, I hadn't had enough of being away by then. So I had a few, I had a bit of time to kill. So I tried to get myself a job in Iraq mm-hmm. because the invasion happened the year before. Obviously, we were all stuck in Northern Ireland. Clearly, a lot of the guys were very frustrated. Yeah, We were turning rations into poo in Northern Ireland and there was a war going on. We'd missed it again. So I was quite keen to get out there. Um, and so I got a bit of a weird job. I was a British liaison officer to a, a, a multinational division in the centre of Iraq. Right. Um, which was actually it was sort of American resourced, but it was actually commanded by the Polish, bizarrely enough. Um, and it was like it was a very strange organisation. It was, it was like a cantina scene out of Star Wars. You know, you had you had a Polish brigade, a Ukrainian brigade and a Spanish brigade and then force elements from something like 22 other countries, which including, I kid you not, Mongolia, um, Nicaragua, uh, you know, some real random stuff. Um, and I think the only sort of interesting thing about that tour for me was it was it was mid, it was summer '04 four when you may recall that that was the summer of the great sort of Sada uh, Muqtada al Sada uprising, mm-hmm. where the coalition found its essentials, you know, properly trapped in the mangle because they were suddenly facing a kind of three front war. We had the Sunni insurgents, normal jogging. We yep, then yep. had foreign fighters coming in from places like Syria. And now they had tens of thousands of militia men from the Shia community as well. And so the wheels were really coming off for a couple of months. Um, And uh, that was the time where you'll probably recall we had the serious hard fighting in places like Simic House in Basra. And um, the actions in Alamara, for which old Private Johnson, then Private Johnson, Bahari, one is VC. Um, So a lot of serious fighting going on at that point. And uh, in my own little corner of Iraq, um, I I, I mustn't be too rude about that organisation because they weren't set up for war fighting. They were set up for, you know, sort of peace enforcement really. And so when this war kicked off in their midst, um, they were really not prepared for it. And the Poles did all right. They put up a pretty good fight actually around Najaf and Kabbalah, which were their key bases. Um, but the Ukrainians uh, folded pretty quickly. And then there was the big bomb in Madrid. And the Spanish announced they were going to pull out of Iraq, which they then did. The Polish chief of staff said, shall we help you pack? Which was um, probably sums up all you need to know about the relations between them. Um, and so what what happened was, is uh, the Americans had to basically come back in, had well, had to come in and retake. Painstakingly, you know, retake town by town, city by city, all these places that had fallen to the Sardar militia. And as I think you may have heard from a couple of other guys, it, that was a, that was an interesting experience in itself, just to see that the sheer power of the United States and the reach of what they can do. You know, I mean, they had two, three combat divisions moving out of Iraq after 12, 13 month tours to go back to the states. You know, they had Apache helicopters in bubble wrap on low loaders down at the ports and they turned the whole lot round and sent them back into Iraq um, to uh, defeat this, this kind of uprising that had mm-hmm. taken place. You know, it's humbling. I mean, it's utterly humbling. And so I, I worked with a lot of Americans at that point and, you know, they were very impressive people in many ways. We know that the Americans are a bit, bit funny about some things, but they they were very impressive, and to see that they, you know, they were a country at war, and they were prepared to take this punishment because they were at war, and it was pretty humbling working with them actually in that respect. Um, my own my own sort of humble involvement was um, only on one operation really, which was the town of Al when um, which was the Ukrainian base, and uh, they the Ukrainians had done a runner basically and, and bolted themselves inside their compound, an American brigade had to be mobilised to go down and retake the tower. So it actually, it was a battle group plus um, striker uh, from the Striker Brigade, 24th Armoured Cavalry Regiment. And uh, I got myself over there, being a British Liaison Officer, I wanted to keep the guys in Alamara informed of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I managed to get myself attached to their um fire support team, they call it US Marine Corps, it was an Anglo- <laughs> US Marine Corps, anchor. it was basically a fire support team. And so I went in with a sort of battle group TAC headquarters to on that fight to retake al Kut. And that was very interesting because that was the first time I'd seen a, you know, a fully um, a fully modernized 21st century, you know, networked uh, fighting formation go and do an operation like that. Amazing. You know, and in their in their headquarters tents, they had like flat screens and, you know, satellite feeds and drone feeds. And they had those specter gunships up and apaches. And the whole thing was just. It was seamless, really impressive. And uh, needless to say, they went into Al Kut and they were through those insurgents like a knife through butter. You know, it took them one night to retake it. I think they killed about 200 of them and lost about two guys. And then what was really sort of, you know, took your breath away was the following morning, they're just packing their gear up and like, great, that's that one done. Where's the next target? You know what I mean? And it was <laughs> really, really, as I say, it was humbling, it was humbling to watch yeah, them yeah, do that very very interesting i think the only yeah the only sort of postscript from that trip was um when i, I used to go down occasionally to basra uh none none of the, i didn't go out to the outstations i just had to go, i had to go to the division headquarters at the airport right is basra airport mm. um and this is this is the only this is the the only sort of uh prefix to my final to well my final the final bit of the story which is my when i was a company commander And uh, this just harks back slightly to some of the things I was saying about the edge. I think we lost a bit in the Balkans. So when I went down to Basra, I was, you know, no names, no patrol, but a lot of the sort of standards that were being displayed, I was quite shocked about um, some of the kind of standards of discipline and battlefield discipline, you know, dress, equipment, convoy drills, um, some of the off-duty behavior uh you know we were still still allowed alcohol at that point um you know it was it was pretty lax it was pretty lax and uh to be honest i've got no doubt we, it did it did cost a few lives um you know some of the guys we some of the incidents we were having i personally think were down to some quite quite poor individual and small unit discipline um mm-hmm. not talking about the units out in their stations here i'm talking about the force troops um, you know, they, they, they used to call the airport, they used to call Basra Napa and Shai Bolog basically called Shai Bitha. Um, and, yeah, there's a reason for that. I, I think I was quite shocked. Yeah. Um, and when I saw some of that with my own eyes, I saw because I knew I was going to take over a company and come back to Iraq in the not too distant future. I sort of, you know, it made quite an impression on me. And I right. kind of said right. to myself, right. OK, when I come back here, you know, we are not going to behave like that. Hmm. Um, because I think it would cost lives and that did, that made it make quite a big impression on me.
0: And then you, so you went back, you you, went, you, were, you then went back to your unit, did you you, did you, yeah. know you were going to get OCF at this point? Yeah,
1: so I, yeah briefly, I, so I came back from that tour, um, I had to fit in my sort of major's staff course which is about eight, nine months where you learn to be a bit more of a grown-up staff officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you learn to do planning at, at kind of divisional level mainly, bit of a bit of core level. So a bit more grown up stuff, and obviously it's nine months, so it's a bit more uh, a bit more uh, involved mm-hmm. um, residential. You know, you can exercise the grey matter a bit. It was good. I enjoyed it actually. Um, and then I went from there back to my battalion to take over a company, um, and the Devon and Daughters were in were then in Catterick, um, and of course. Because I'd been the adjutant before, the last thing I'd done was made sure I'd write the company commander's plot, so I would take over A Company, because <laughs> you can you can get away with that stuff when you're an adjutant. Yeah, Shame, yeah. shameful. Um, but yeah, so I was really happy because A Company is where I started off in the DnDs back in the early nineties. So yeah, right. took over the company in uh, sort of autumn two thousand five, mm-hmm. up in Sunny Catterick. Um, you were yeah, there for a while, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, no, they were. Um, that was our last posting, actually, as, as a regiment. Um, and it's, you know, uh, it's always nice to go back to the regiment. And I, I'd been, as you I hadn't actually been to many staff jobs, you know, my two years with the, with the Worcestershire Foresters was the longest I'd been away. It's always nice to go back to the battalion, you know, particularly when it's one of those small family regiments, because a lot of the guys, you know, you know, they started to move up the ranks. And I took over the company and, you uh, I knew the CQMS very well, I knew my sergeant major very well, Um, you know one of the platoon sergeants, uh, in fact two of the platoon sergeants had been on the NCO's car that I'd run, Um, you know and the other guy I knew very well as well, you know I knew a lot of full screws, it was in my county. it was really nice Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, uh, you know my second in command had been in the mess when I was adjutant in Northern Ireland so on. so it's always really nice to come back to a, a family unit like that. Yeah, and then you
0: you so you you done Iraq. Um yeah. Before. Before you so you when did you know you were gonna deploy again to Iraq? Was this was this a known tour or was this a short
1: Yeah. No, it was was firm while I was on my staff course. Um you know, I, I thought I was pretty sure that the the battalion would go there. Um Again this was 06 so so the big deployment to Afghanistan hadn't happened yet
2: mm-hmm.
1: so um, uh, the Paris you know 16 brigades deployment was in fact in summer 06
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so I didn't think we would go to Afghanistan but it was it was just just the way the army plot worked I knew that at some point our, the battalion would go to Iraq it was almost inevitable
0: mm-hmm. and Which, did you because you'd been to Iraq yeah before did yeah. you? Did that give you any comfort before going?
1: Yeah, it kind of did. It kind of did, because although uh, I wasn't too familiar with some of the the terrain that we were going to work on, you know, I I sort of, uh, I understood a little bit about the place. Um, uh, Not not a huge amount, but I mean, you know, I understood, well, I understood the the slightly bigger picture about, Mm -hmm. you know, who was who who in the zoo and what threat was and what the americans were up to and, and all this kind of and the you know the the, the more sort of higher level operational picture um i also got some of the real time constraints of the place which is stuff you'll be very familiar with from your tours you know heat space um you know sort of some aspects about the people mm-hmm. um it's all useful stuff um and uh yeah, I think apart from that, as I've just touched on briefly, I also had some thoughts for me in my head about uh, how we were going to conduct ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was pretty yeah. important.
0: Yeah. And you, did you get the full beat up training for your company? Did you? Yeah, get we did.
1: Training? Yeah, we did. It was a bit strained um, because by that time the army was like moving into top gear, mm-hmm. which is the... the um, Afghanistan, 16 brigades deployment to Afghanistan had been confirmed. And that was overnight basically doubling the load that the army had to carry, uh, which, as you probably know, blew away all the assumptions that the army had been resourced and planned for for quite some time. You know, we thought we were only ever going to run with one medium scale, you know, large brigade level operation. And here, certainly, we were going to have to run two side by side.
2: Mm.
1: So, <laughs> So everyone was like, Whoa, "This is going to hurt," um, and so resources were very tight. And, and it's an interesting contrast when I think back to my training for Northern Ireland when I was a when I was a, a sublet. You know, it was very measured, well resourced. You know, you started at the bottom, gradually worked up. Everything was in a nice sort of you know easily digestible chunks. Whereas the training for Iraq was. And it was all right, but it was, it was was pretty pell-mell, you know? Mm. And I was trying to teach my company or not teach my company, sorry, that's very big headed, but my company and I were training in mobile operations because we were going to be in the dreaded Snaps Land Rovers.
2: Mm.
1: We had something like six, um, short wheelbase closed top Land Rovers. And we were doing it on a training area in Kent. Which was purely, you know, country leafy lanes with hedgerows, right? Somewhere more unlike Southern Iraq, yeah, you literally yeah. couldn't find, you know what I mean? It was yeah, great if you're training for South Armagh. <laughs> you know, and, and and me and me and, and the Sergeant Major and the two IC and, and and the platoon blokes and the platoon commanders, you know, we had to have quite a lot of conversations about how we sort of tried to inject a bit more realism into it, which was challenging. Um, but we did do the training package, yeah. And actually the optag package, the one where you're the shooting package down in High and Lid was good down in Kent. And the um the final exerciser optag, which I think was in Stanter, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Where the Optag team run you through. That was pretty good. Got got no problems with that. But yeah, you know, we finished the training feeling, I would say, a bit tired and a bit strained, which was a big contrast to my previous experience. Was was
0: this was this the first? Uh, Iraq tour for the D&Ds? Yes, it was.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, so a, a number of individuals had been, but it was a very small number. Yeah. And um, yeah, actually, on day one, week one, when I briefed the company, you know, I, I said, right, guys, you know, hands up, hands up who's been on operations. And about, I don't know, a third of the guys put their hands up. So you're right, you know, hands up who's ever been under fire. And, it's probably about three of us, yeah. you know, um, four, four, so four, four or so, four or five, you know, myself. But so but a
0: small, yeah, but, but a small amount. Than,
1: yeah, very small amount. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, our corporate knowledge of those sorts of operations was not high. Actually, wasn't high in the battalion. So how how would how did you
0: find how did you find the uh, that the troops were because obviously, true infantry, we we, we like to fight. That's why we joined the army. You know, that's, yeah. that's what we yeah. did. But how did you find? Did you did you see? How did you see the blokes and how they how they were how they prepared mentally or yeah? Because again, cause, it's a good just
1: question. Going back. Yeah. Yeah. No, very good question, Dave. I mean, I think to be honest, I think the blokes played up pretty well. Um, so, what the things I yeah, everyone was looking forward to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, I suspect you probably remember from your own organisation, you know, in every battalion, every, every company, you've got that hardcore avenue of nutters who are always giving you dramas. You know, I had one bloke, I won't say his name, you know, he's, God, he's just AWOL the whole time. He'd always come back again, but he's, he's sort of shagging. You know, a couple <laughs> of G&Lads always in bother, you know what I mean? And then as soon as the, as soon as the tour prep started and I was able to say, to, we were able to brief the guy say, right, look, guys, if you mess up, you're not going yeah you know what i mean and that had you know uh, we i don't remember having a single discipline problem from the time we started pre-deployment training till after we got back literally Mm. no no, certainly nothing serious um so i think the blokes played up pretty well um i like i I like to think i gave you know i gave them a bit of sort of direction on how we were going to play it Mm. um Because although, yeah, you know, as as a battalion and as a brigade, I think our mission was quite difficult to, you know, it's quite difficult to sort of put the meat on the bones. It was a bit broad. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had been out on a recce with the battalion staff and the other OCs and I knew where we were going. I knew roughly what the threat was going to be and and I knew the issues we were going to have. So I get I'm I'm a great believer as Margaret Thatcher said always make your point in threes right <laughs> so so I, I we had three kind of themes that I I really tried to hammer into the blokes and the first was um was was basically about avoiding the key threat
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the key threat to us was the roadside bomb yeah um and it was a very specific type of roadside bomb it was a, a what's called a an EFP electrically Sorry, explosively formed projectile, which is just a very nasty slug of metal formed by the way that the explosives are packed, um, initiated by a passive infrared laser. Uh, sorry, a passive infrared beam that the that the vehicle would break the beam, initiate the firing circuit, and the EFP would hit. And that and that those EFPs were being used in theater, and and they hit a snatched Land Rover, and it's mincemeat. Yeah.
2: You know,
1: anyone frankly who's in that is lucky to walk out alive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was the drills that we were going to employ to counter that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one. The second one that I hammered into blokes was this idea of unpredictability um, because we were very small you know it was only a company. we had quite a big AOR. Um, and it, we were going to have our work cut out for us to keep the enemy on the back foot right And the key way I thought we were going to do that is, is, is unpredictability. Mm. And I used to call it plant the seed of doubt in the enemy's mind. And we used to, you know, we used to have competitions and when we were out there as well, it was like unpredictable tactic of the week. <laughs> right. You know, we just we, we just it's a constant thing about, right, let's think, 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 think how we can do things differently in unpredictable in an unpredictable way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was the second thing. And then the third thing, which I think you'll probably um, you're bored of me saying now is battlefield discipline, um, which for which I I, I briefed the, the headshed early on was going to be an absolute priority of mine is to basically maintain the highest standards in everything we did about battlefield discipline, be that, you know, kit, equipment, vulnerable point drills, convoy drills, the whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I considered that was going to be key to staying alive. Um, and also I knew, and this is something that we'll talk about on the mental health side, I knew that we weren't going to be in shooting matches on a regular basis. And we weren't because that's not the threat in that AOR. And I knew the guys were going to be working very hard. They were going to be tired. They're going to be a lot of repetitive stuff, sometimes actually even bored. But they would have to stay on top Mm. of that battlefield discipline. Yeah. Yeah. So those those are the sort of areas that we focused on. And and, um, I was incredibly lucky. I had some great platoon commanders, some great platoon sergeants, good sergeant major, good 2IC. And so, you know, I, I pushed it very much to them to keep coming up with ideas about how we... Sort of hammer home those three themes, yeah. which we did. I think with, I hope, with a, a reasonable amount of success. So now I think the and the blokes they they played up well. They played up very well. I was really happy with the standard of the company by the time we deployed.
0: Yeah, and how and how did um and how did your tour go? How did that tour uh, as an OC yeah.
1: So so it was all right. It was good. I mean, it, it was um, it was a, a quite an interesting. Um, area and it was different from working in the city. And you've already heard from Stu that working in the city could be very unpleasant. And certainly by back end of 06, 07, you know, you drive out the gate of Basra Palace, you're going to come under contact, mm-hmm. almost guaranteed. Okay, so we were further out to the southwest. We were on the, on the sort of fringe of Basra, the town of Aswabiah, and then out a bit of the desert as well, and the main transit routes and the remainder oil fields. So the um, the threat of direct action, direct shoots, etc was lower. As I've already said, the roadside bomb was the key threat, the roadside ID. Um, But what made that good, well, it's good, nice to be not shot at the whole time, right? <laughs> yeah. But what made it interesting was that because you had that freedom of action, because you weren't being shot at the whole time, you could really employ the peanut power, you know, you and the guys could really talk about what imaginative operations we could do. And you really did feel that you were pitting your brains against the enemy, right, rather than just, you know, being figure 11s, coming out, being shot at, going around in circles and going back in again.
2: Mm.
1: So that was very that was good. And and yeah, we had, you know, we had a bit of success. We were presented with some specific problems. There, there was a Sunni community that lived in Azubiah that were being ethnically cleansed, um, partly by intimidation, and partly by murder. And we managed to to stop that happening pretty much mm-hmm. by doing a lot of patrolling, a lot of deception and a lot of um, sort of skullduggery um, after dark to, to try and make it look like there were more of us than there actually were. And we mm-hmm. managed to get a break on that, which was good. Um, we used to do probably strike up about once every 10 days, two weeks, something like that, um, where we'd get, use the intelligence that we'd gathered or, or that was pushed down and go in and, you know, turn a couple of houses over at, in, at night um, do the arrests and, and capture equipment and stuff. And we had some quite good successes there. We, we knocked out a couple of rocket teams um, and we, we degraded the enemy's ability. I think I'm fairly confident about that. And, and some of the bigger players from from the insurgents used to come out of Basra and live in Azubayr, like at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and we were, yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, you know, it's the kind of Eastbourne... C- Cotswolds uh, <laughs> of London. Cotswolds yeah, that's of London. right. Yeah, uh, and and we managed to pick a few of them up on strike ops. So that was good. And also as an added extra, um, they used to fire a lot of IDF, a lot of rockets at Shiber Log base, which is where we were based. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got a little wheeze going again through a lot of a lot of deception mainly, and a lot of inf- what we call what you might call info ops, and making them believe that we had all, we plotted all the firing points basically. And we made them believe that we had all but two of the firing points identified and sewn up with snipers and drones. We didn't have any of this stuff. We just <laughs> we just used tactics and made them believe that, that yeah. they did. And then we set ambushes on the other two sites to try and get them to launch from there and kill them, basically. Yeah. Um, now we didn't actually get to trip an ambush, unfortunately. But we got we got the IDF attacks. They we they used we used to get like three four three four attacks every 24 hours. It was down to about three a week by the yeah. time we left. So that was good. So it was a um, so it, it was, a, uh, it was a, success, a reasonably successful tour. Um, so what I wanted to touch on, because you know mental health is is obviously what what we're talking about. Um, I'll, 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 if I may, I'll just give you a couple of, uh, of sort of examples and a couple of themes of of how I saw it. Yeah. So we had a bit. We did have. I think we did have a bit of a mental health challenge there, and it's not because. We were in running gun battles every day because we weren't. We had, we had, you know, we had a few contacts, but not lots of big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly not enough that I would say, you know, to generate lots of real sort of trauma, PTSD type stuff. Um, so what we did have was we had this constant uh, fear. I think we, we should be perfectly comfortable mm-hmm. calling it that, of these these fiendish roadside bombs, roadside IEDs, which would wipe you out. hmm. We had guys killed from lots of different units in all the AORs bordering us, right, apart from the south. You know, we'd, we'd seen Danish guys killed, Queen's Dream Guards guys, uh, I think a couple of Royal Anglian guys, if I remember, you know, a couple of artillery guys to our north. You know, this was happening, and it, and in snatch vehicles and soft skin Land Rovers that we sometimes okay. had to drive around in. And I think the, the sort of pace of operations, the fatigue... And that just that constant worry that you were going to get slammed by one of these things. Mm-hmm. I do think that had an, an effect on blokes. Um, and equally, what they weren't getting on a regular basis was that sort of adrenaline release of combat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they weren't getting that thing where they were actually get shot at. And they could get down in a fire position and let rip mm-hmm. you know, and have that sort of adrenaline charged minutes or hours and they can come back in, come back in and, and then let the adrenaline recede. You know, we, we just mm. didn't have that a lot. We, we did it a little bit, but not often. And I, I do think that, that that sort of constant grind, that constant anxiety about being hit by these roadside bombs was quite debilitating. Um, and I remember feeling it myself. I, I remember, you know, driving in my snatch and I, I used to sit in the lead vehicle because, frankly, I thought, it'd be a bit cheeky to, <laughs> to, to not. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, you drive through a, a culvert or something. If you go, you might go off road or, you know, skirt around a vulnerable point or drive through a culvert and you think, right, okay, well, I'll just go through this one. I won't do a vulnerable point check and you drive through. And as you drive through, you know, you, the old, the old butt cheeks tighten and you think, Oh shit, you know, have I just made the last decision in my life? Yeah. And is the next thing I'm going to see that, flash of light as an efp hits the vehicle and then you're through and nothing happens and you're like oh, Christ. And, and you know and this is happening on a daily basis um and i think the stress of that did get to people mm-hmm. and i've uh, there's three little examples i'll give you we we had three guys who had some quite severe mental mental illness uh, my fleet corporal unfortunately he was a good bloke Um, he had a bit of a nervous breakdown. As you said earlier, interestingly, partly linked to what was going on at home. Sadly, he was medevac from theatre and that happened while I was away on R&R and I was quite angry about that because I'd actually rather have kept him on in theatre. The RMO was not particularly, in my view, was not a particularly effective individual um, and he'd been backloaded. A couple of months later, sorry, a few weeks later, I had a, a Lance Jack who was the head of my signals deck poor guy he was really junior for that job it was a massive account loads of radios loads of ECM you know it was a big account to run a lot of responsibility and he was out every day with me and my rover group so he would feel all these pressures same as everyone else okay so he mislaid a bit of ECM kit which as you I'm sure you know is a big deal right and, and it was a pure we hadn't lost it. it was a pure paperwork exercise like it always is but we had to declare it lost um Temporarily, and of course I had to give him a bollocking because you know I hope I didn't do it too harshly. But to cut a long story short. He made he made quite a serious attempt at self harm. Yeah. Tried to cut his wrists, but fortunately some of his mates were there and they got him. You know he he was taken to the to the to the med centre in in, back, in uh, Shiver and was patched up. And uh, what we did was we actually I had to wrote the co in because the the doc was going to backload him back to UK and I said no no. Let's not send him back to UK. Actually, his wrists were okay; they, they, mm-hmm. they healed up pretty quickly. Because there's this thing about, you know, I said I don't want him disappearing off into some, you know, NHS-led mental health merry-go-round, some mm-hmm. magical mystery tour. I said, I want him here, right? He doesn't. He, he, we'll take him out to the, the signals dept. Okay, he can work. He's a great signaller. He can work in botanic quarters on the on the radio desk or on the watchkeeper's desk or whatever. But let's keep him here where he can see his mates, you know what I mean? And that's what happened and I'm mm-hmm. delighted to say that he he got better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one I had was a, a private soldier, and I, I can't put my hand on my heart and tell you that what he did was a direct effect of the pressure of the tour, but I, I expect it had a, a, an influence, is that on R&R he went back, uh, there was a family party, you know, he'd had a few drinks, he got into an argument with his uncle, basically they started fighting, and he grabbed a kitchen knife and sunk it into his uncle's chest, um, oh. who unfortunately died. Um, and so this this soldier w- was um, uh, immediately sort of uh, remanded for yeah. manslaughter yeah. charges in Exeter. Nick. Um, so, you know, I can't I can't say for sure how many guys felt that real mental pressure on that tour, and I don't know for sure the knock on afterwards. Um, but I know. I know that the guys were under a lot of pressure. I, I felt it myself. Um, and, you know, I think it's that, I, it's, I hope you or you're, you don't mind me just drawing that slight distinction there between the the real sort of the trauma side of mm. the real kind of PTSD, sort of pure, you know, from combat, those effects from combat, uh, and that slightly different one of just the grind, you know, the grind and the fatigue and the anxiety and the not being able to see your enemy, and not being able to have that release of adrenaline that combat gives you, but just to know that around every damn corner, one of these IEDs could be nestled, ready to take you out. Um, but I think uh, for me that was a it was a, it was a, yeah important issue, and I think it was, I think it was present, no, no more I don't, doubt
0: about it. Definitely, because it was even that on my tour, you know, you had oh, I was in Sangin, was. Two years before was the most kinetic place in the world. But yeah. for my tour, even though it was still, you know, there was firefights, it was mainly IEDs. IED threat was Yeah. You know, we weren't going anywhere without a Valon and it was
2: Yeah.
0: You know, unfortunately my you know, we had a we had a few that were triggered throughout the throughout the tour. And yeah. It's just I I did the Valon job. I think I did it once or twice. And honestly, it was the it was horrible it was, you know just look you you're basically there looking for for ids and it was to to do that for the whole the whole time is it's mentally draining because yes not only are you but what people don't realize is when you're you're always expecting a fight but always thinking there's an ied is you're you're always on a your state of alertness is the highest you'll ever be and for Absolutely. to be constantly on in that state of alertness is, is draining it's hard yeah
1: that's and the word isn't it it's draining
0: yeah yeah and going Very away true. for six months and obviously this was this was a rack and this was before we had the decompression and you know everything like that how was and, and 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 again this was even you know it's only been recent recent years where mental health has been such a big for the forefront of everyone's mind but back in two thousand and six and seven, it was, you know, suck it up and crack on. Yeah, how it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you know, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and you know, and it just must have been, especially for your for the guy who 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 did that while on tour. How how did he? How did that? How did your the unit react to him?
1: Which one? Sorry, the the, the guy who cut cut his wrist. The guy did his self harm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he was he was okay um, because he was because we got him back into the battalion signal platoon, and most of our signals deck guys were sort of from the signal platoon.
2: Yeah,
1: so he had he had good mates there, and he's a nice guy, you know, very gentle, gently spoken, gentle sort of guy, Um, and I think uh, he he was actually all right because he was you know back in the bosom of signal platoon, Um, and I think everyone you know everyone by that stage understood very well that although this wasn't going to be a sort of as we talked about you know this wasn't going to be a sort of ptsd um you know trauma heavy tour everyone got the amount of pressure people were were under and i think um i think that decision to have him back there with mates for the remainder of the tour was absolutely the right one Mm -hmm. because what i really worry about was you know him then if he'd been sent back to UK, I mean, oh, God knows what happened to him. He'd have ended up on rear party probably hmm. with a bunch of unfamiliar people that he didn't know. Um, if he'd had, if he'd wanted to speak to someone who, who the hell would he have spoken to hmm. some random military, some random medical officer in the catrick med center who might have referred him to Celio or something, you know, God knows where he might've hmm. ended up. So, um, no, I think it's 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 something that I remember people talking about from the Falklands War. It's uh, one of the ways you treat mental health is, is proximity, mm-hmm. yeah? Get it, the idea that you get people as far away from the front line as possible is not necessarily the right one. Because any, any sort of um, comfort blanket of mateship or people who've had a shared experience, you know, anything like that is going to be beneficial, generally mm-hmm. speaking, rather yeah. than plucking some poor bloke out and dumping him in the middle of the the magical medical mystery tour right
0: <laughs> yeah and obviously he's if you'd have just lumped him back in the uk you've got again we're in a time where mental health is not so you know we're not everyone's not aware of it and yeah you know that if they would just seem they won't know the experience he's going through whereas at least the guys on the ground they're aware of why he's feeling like that whereas people who are maybe on rear party they don't they don't see why he's felt like that and they may i guess use that as a how blokes do is yeah
1: no exactly not bloody, I think that's that's an, excellent, that's an excellent point um if he'd been dumped back at home on the rear party might be some stigma attached to it yeah um, and also i've got a feeling he was a married man but it, but if he hadn't been you know he might have been living on his own in a room in a block um who's keeping an eye on him still the yeah. nice thing about on operations generally someone's keeping an eye on you the whole time
2: yeah,
1: quite quite rare that you're actually on your own, <laughs> right? Yeah. So no, your your point is excellent. No, absolutely. Yeah, and then,
0: and that was you finish that tour. Yeah. Back back to was this before you amalgamated to the rifles or no? It so
1: so it, in many ways, um, Dave, that that for me that is where the, the sort of beautiful story closes. Um, <laughs> so we the homecoming was actually a bit tainted to be mm-hmm. honest because we knew the amalgamation was coming it had been planned for a while and a lot of the details were thrashed out while we were in iraq um we came home our final parades you know weren't the year they were sort of iraq medal parades but actually they were kind of disbandment parades mm. which didn't feel great yeah. I, w- I won't lie to you it didn't feel great um you sort of felt bit resentful, you know, a mm-hmm. bit hard done by, um, probably more so given that you've just come back from a tour, mm-hmm. it's quite hard not to think for yourself, oh yeah, right, so that's, that's our reward, is it? Well, cheers for that, lads. Um, and all, because we were amalgamating into the rifles, we were we were pretty much losing our identity. I mean, it's it's work. the organisation is very successful, but there's no getting around that we did lose a lot of our identity mm. through that process. Um, and actually I I think, I think there are some really, there are some real, real live human aspects to it. It's not just nonsense about what collar dogs you wear and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think I I personally felt that loss of the family regiment quite, quite hard. And a few incidents that happened afterwards actually highlighted it to me. Um, we, because we became the rifle's. We came home as D&Ds, we had our final parades, we did our, all our sort of post admin, which was good, because although we didn't have decompression inside, the battalion was together for about two, mm-hmm. three weeks in Catterick. Then we went on Christmas leave, which was probably about right, actually. And then we came back in February and amalgamated then. Um, only about two weeks after we amalgamated, we got the news that one of our my company who'd stayed on in Iraq with another battalion was killed in action. Um, which was which is very tough. He was a great guy, a guy called mm. Daniel Coffey, known of known of course as Kenko Coffey. Um, nice young lad, you know. Re- that, that was hard, and a, a lot of guys in the company obviously was good mates from two, two. Um And uh, you know, I, I've always I've always felt a bit uncomfortable. He was killed under the command of another OC,
2: mm.
1: and I went down to see his family. I went to his funeral. You know, I kept in touch with his family and I still am occasionally although then they're, they're quite private people they don't reach out too much but I've never I've never really felt that the rifles you know an organization that big I think it's it's just quite easy to lose that personal touch
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know what mm-hmm. I mean I, I can't say with any with any confidence that the rifles reach out and touch that family regularly I don't know I don't think they do mm. um and I've always felt a bit you know oof about that Um, Another interesting one. um, Yeah, one of my platoon sergeants, one of the guys I talked about uh, a a year or two later, um, I I stumbled when I was in a staff job, I stumbled across a piece of paperwork. So he was being court-martialed for bullying um, at uh, at the infantry training centre, which I was very surprised about because he's just not that kind of guy. Mm. And I had to do a lot of ringing around And eventually I found out that he, you know, I found out the details and I got in touch with him. And I was like, oh, you know, hey Sergeant X, oh, this is terrible. You know, right? What can I do to help? You know, right? Do you need, do you need me to talk to your lawyer? Can I do start organising some character statements? And we talked about it. And, he, and at the end, he said, he said, you know what, sir? He said, you're the first officer that I've served under who's got in touch. And I was like, God, geez, that's unforgivable. Mm. You know? And I, did, I I'm not criticising the rifles. That's not what this is about. But what I'm saying is, is that. If we were the Devon and Dorsets, that would never have been the case. What mm. I mean, all the everyone that knew him would have known about it like that and would have rallied mm. round behind him. So that was a bit of a shame. Um, and you know, there are other little examples. I don't want to bang on, but I think it just all sort of fed the narrative a bit that it was it was a great shame to lose that that family regiment. You know, small mm. is beautiful, and and we've lost it. And that coming back from a tour, that that felt hard. Yeah, there's yeah. no two ways about it.
0: I can only imagine because we, when that all happened, you had the rifles. The Scots did it as well, and it's, you know, yeah. you had the the Welsh did it. And yeah. It's, and it's we we were we were at a pace. Well, is it going to happen to the Queen's Div or are we going to become the Queen's Div and fusiliers are going to amalgamate with the Royal Angler into bloody barons? Yeah.
2: Because
0: because it, it was it was one of them. It was a luck of a draw whether that happened to I guess your division. And yeah.
1: Happened. Uh, I mean, hey, fair game. It was probably our turn. You know, the Fusiliers have been amalgamated many times. Well, a few, quite a few times before. We've only been done once. So it was kind of our turn. But, yeah, I think it was... It, it, you know, the reasons are understandable. And, and actually, the, the Rifles is a very successful organisation. Yeah. Don't begrudge it that at all. But I'd be lying if I said that I didn't feel the loss of the Devon and Dorsets yeah. very profoundly. I mean, um, you
0: were 16 years serving with yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Got, and I guess it changes with the the newer people coming in and yeah so they exactly. had like the green jackets are just as you know it's historic as you know they're losing the green jackets for for the people again with that um but yeah. it was like light, light light div and
1: yeah indeed and i'm sure each you know each unit had its own sort of uh you know its own sort of headaches and its own sort of um jealousies and sorrows about amalgamating um I, yeah i can't speak for all of them i just see uh, it yeah it was uh, it was it was a sad time and the fact that we'd come back off tour made mm. it even sadder because as i've hinted at, there were a few sort of hangover issues and you know blokes kia injured guys guys in prison mm. you know that it, it was just it was it was unfortunate timing like one would have liked to have all those you would like that warm feeling to have, you would know all those areas were covered off nicely by that nice little tight regimental family, which now it's been kind of bust open and absorbed into a large organisation. You just, you haven't got the confidence that it does, but hey-ho, that is is change, and I'm afraid that will always be a constant, so, you
0: know. Yeah, Yeah, and, and was that, you didn't stay, you stayed in what, for another four years?
1: yeah i stayed for another four years again again david if i'm being honest i think i kind of mentally left the army the day i left the D's. Yeah. sounds a bit sappy and sentimental but if i'm being honest that is the truth mm-hmm. um i stuck it for another four years because i frankly couldn't think of, <laughs> think of much else to do mm-hmm. uh and i just got i got mad at that i finally i finally gave in and got mad <laughs> after being company commander um and uh yeah did a couple of years and the personnel centre in Glasgow which was crap and then did two years in, in the headquarters in land forces which was actually quite interesting but by that time I was 40 had a couple of kids you yeah. know wasn't going to be a, a senior officer <laughs> very quickly so I made the decision to leave which um, no I don't regret at all you know I left on a high I did leave on a high yeah. um, while I was still enjoying it um, no point sticking around and getting, you,
0: all, getting all old and bitter. <laughs> and you left as a major?
1: That's major, yeah. I, I would have probably made lieutenant colonel at some point, and perhaps even full colonel if I was very lucky. But um, I probably wasn't going to command. Certainly not a regular unit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's very competitive, and I probably wasn't going to make the cut. Yeah. And frankly, if you're not going to do that next level of command as an officer, um, a lot of guys turn around and go, "Well, hey, it's been it's been grand, but I'm off."
0: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because it's, it's interesting seeing it from. From a normal entry perspective because you kind of, when you get to that, you your career's kind of mapped out for you, aren't you? can kind of, I guess, see if you're gonna become a you know, lieutenant colonel or an OC or a command, you know, commanding officer, kind of. Um, definitely, yeah. Whereas, you know, yeah, definitely. It, it, it's similar to, I guess, the RSM, you know, you can kind of see who's going to become the RSM. You can, I guess, it's a biggest you've got a bigger pot
1: of them um, to be the CO. Um. indeed no very much so and again it's something about the army and it's one I think it's one of the extraordinary um, uh, comparisons between army life and civilian life is this kind of career model Mm. bonkers right (laughs) I know in the army it it kind of works for us but blimey you know you try and explain it to a civvy whoa (laughs) what the hell is that about Um, really really interesting so no but in a way in a way I I, I like it you know it was good you knew where you stood no one ever turned around to me and said, "Oh, please, Matt, don't go. You know, you might be a full colonel one day." Uh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, we were. The army was being cut again. Yeah. At that point okay. about twenty-five thousand blokes were about to be made redundant. So I thought, well, let's get out ahead of that. So yeah. no, it's good timing. Good timing. How, no how did you find?
0: How did you find? Because you'd been in now twenty years. Yeah. Um, how did you find that? Because pro- a lot of the guys, you know, I struggled when I left. Yeah, I, I don't know. I only did five years. I didn't do a lot, but yeah, you know, I struggled, and it, it's it's probably I struggled because transferable skills from the infantry as a as a lance jack is yeah. a lot less than a twenty year you know major in, in the infantry. But how did you how did you find the process of becoming a civilian from the twenty years of being in the army?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, Dave, and and not. Not as easy as I thought it was going to be, to be mm-hmm. honest. It's a very kind comment you made about transferable skills. But I mean, um, yeah, you know, as a 20 year infantry officer with nothing vocational and no, no, um, no sort of uh, university level education to my name. It wasn't as easy as I thought. Um, and I ended up, yeah, it took me a good six months to find a job. Mm-hmm which was quite lucky because I had about six months stored up of, you know, terminal leave and resettlement and all that gash. Um, The resettlement process I thought was okay. Um, uh, What I rapidly realized, as I expect we all do, is that actually what you know has got zero importance. It's who you know. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to reach out to some kind of network is very useful. Um, and actually I did, that was quite encouraging. It wasn't just, it's not just a kind of old boys club type thing. I reached out through a couple of army networks, which were very good, um, all, all ranks type networks. I think the list was one. Uh, there is an officers association uh, uh, in Scotland I reached out through and they, they were quite helpful actually. Um, we went to live in Scotland, which was quite tricky because it sort of affected decisions a little bit. But yeah, it took me about six months to find a job and the pay was rubbish and I had to weekly commute up to Aberdeen. Um, but I took the decision with the wife that I was going to just, you know, bite the bullet, grasp the nettle and just do it to mm-hmm. get, get on the first rung of civil life. And uh, things did work out okay. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I managed to get, apply and get another job after a year, which was much better. And then from there I got a better one. And, and, you mm-hmm. know, so, so it goes on, but um no, it was it was a concerning period, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'd done some sensible things. I, You've been in that long. You know, I'd bought myself a little house, so we had a, we had some property to fall back on and some savings and all the rest of it. But it was concerning, yeah, especially with, the, with a wife and two young kids. Yeah. And you just can't help thinking, oh, geez, man, you know, right, these guys are my responsibility. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to earn the money. You can't just sit back and go, ah, right, it's OK, postings branch will sort me out yeah um but uh no so not not as easy as i thought it was going to be uh, and uh but got there in the end is how i'd characterize it yeah
0: <laughs> and then so since you've been out um and in recent years you know it's no it's no secret that you know i don't know what what, what it's like for your old unit but um the, the military itself and especially our era of warriors suicide is a big big issue yeah um, how, how's that seeing it from from your from your point of view and from your perspective seeing seeing blokes that have you know you've been under your command i don't know if anyone on you know who was under your command has has taken their life but su- suicide just in general is is running rife through our generation of soldiers mm. i wonder i yes. wonder how that is seeing it from your point of view
1: yeah I, I mean obviously it's it's horrible it's awful um i think to lose a guy to suicide is I mean, obviously there is no nice way to lose a person that you that you love and like and respect um but to lose someone through suicide i think is is one of the hardest ways um because if you know them there is always a part of you that thinks is there anything i could have done mm. or anything more i could have done and yeah, the you know the, the the issue of veteran suicide is is terrible. Um, I'm I don't know, and I haven't got any kind of statistics to hand, but I mean I I do know obviously it's pretty bad. Um, I believe, touch Wood, I believe that we haven't had a, a suicide from from certainly my company when I was an OC, and I have not come across. I don't think certainly in the last few years an ex D D who's taken their own life. I don't think, um, or if they have, it's not been kind of publicized, you know, on, on their the Facebook pages and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it's an area that I have to confess, you know, I haven't been touched with personally. A couple of guys did take their lives while I was serving with the battalion, which I remember very clearly. Um, but it's not touched me personally, but the, yeah, the problem is, is it, is out there and it's, and it's very, um, it's very clear and very acute. Um, what we do about it is, is an interesting question. Um, I've uh, I wouldn't presume to uh, to give people advice. It's not an area that I would consider myself anything like a, an expert on. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a bit uh, it sounds a bit sort of trite, but if I think put it this way, if, if I was if I was feeling bad, um, there's probably two things that that I would do, knowing what I do now, possibly three. You know, at the lowest level, I would definitely get on. It's, it sounds rubbish, doesn't it? I would definitely get on Facebook, right, and onto one of these like vets sites, like do you do you look at final RV, FRV,
2: mm-hmm.
1: something like that, right? Okay, so about ten or twenty percent of what goes on there is just utter nonsense. (laughs) But what I've been really impressed by is when sometimes when guys get on there and they say, "Hey, look, I'm just got like forty thousand members or something," and and the guys say, "Look, hey guys, I'm I'm having a really hard time tonight," and within you know within an hour, within an hour or two, they've got like four hundred comments, and they are all generally very supportive. Mm
2: -hmm. Now
1: that in itself is not you know, going to solve anything. But it's quite nice, isn't it? That even though social media is such a nightmare in many ways, it's quite nice that there's a forum That as easy as that. You can write a single line and within, you know, less than four hours, you'll have three, 400 blokes reaching out to you saying, Hey mate, we're here for you. You know, yeah. what can we do, give me a call, just do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, not a bad place to start. Um, I think it's a great comment you made earlier about the fact that when people are considering self-harm, it's not just PTSD. And you're absolutely right on that. It's not poor old vets sat there like on the films with a, you know, a 45 pressed their head. Mm. Yeah. I, In my humble experience, I absolutely agree with you. It's normally a confluence of factors, problems with a wife, alcohol, joblessness, you know, all the kind of just all the the shit things that happen in life uh, aggravates it Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly if I if I found myself slipping and sliding in any of those areas there's a couple of organizations that I would reach out to the first is I would definitely reach out to my regimental family
2: um, Mm
1: -hmm. because I'm I'm always I've never ceased to be reassured uh, I've always been incredibly reassured about the regimental family, even though it's all changed quite a lot, and you know for us it's now the rifles, or, or now for the, the Black Watch it's the Scots, or whoever it might be, um, that you know that cap badge is really powerful, and I think it's it would be most unusual for a regiment to leave any man behind once they're aware of a problem, mm-hmm. even if they can't help themselves, they can signpost it to other places. I think the other thing that some guys. I don't know. Some guys might not realize that Once you reach out to that regiment, the regiment's got huge reach. Any regiment,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Fusiliers, d N, E, doesn't even ones that don't exist anymore. You've got a lot of blokes, you've got a lot of ex-senior NCOs, and have got a lot of ex-officers. And all these people end up in very interesting places and doing lots of interesting things. You know what I mean, right? They'll be in finance, law, education, welfare, health. You know, they're all over the place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you've got enough good blokes, that that effort can be mobilized to help someone. And I've seen it happen with a few guys from, from certainly from my own organization. Uh, when guys have had problems, reaching out through the regimental family is generally a pretty damn good thing to do. Um, and the other organization, which I'm quite a fan of, and I'd be interested in your comments, I'm pre, I'm conscious of time here, so I won't go on too long, possibly my last point, is um, I have done some work for uh, Help for Heroes. Mm-hmm um if i was a county coordinator for them for the scottish borders for a couple of years and um although they have had some quite bad press and and some of that is justified uh, i i am i'm a reasonable fan of them Mm -hmm. Um, and i would absolutely encourage anyone with mental health to give them a shout uh with mental health issues sorry as as a kind of first port of call um if they want an organization that is going to again make sure that they're not left behind, because I think health is quite good at that. And they've got these, they've got very good links. I know because I've been down and visited the recovery centres and I've seen how they work and, you know, I've, I've looked into how their liaison work. They've got very good links into combat stress uh, and the National Health Service and so on and so forth, as well as all the services they run internally.
0: <laughs> so I think
1: it's, uh, again, it's worth giving them a shout as well. Yeah, they have, um, is it hidden wounds? That's the, uh, I
0: think the mental the yeah mental health thing for health heroes yeah this was absolutely from memory what i can remember yes
1: yeah. and uh, and you know if, if if any guys listening to this turn around and go oh yeah hang on i've I, I know i've heard about health heroes they they kind of spunk money on silly vanity projects and stuff right there, there is a little bit of truth in that yeah but, but i mean um, <laughs> in order
0: to get in order to get to the status that they have you know it's 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 kind of in, i guess in order to help people you have to Build a platform where you can get the coverage that it's needed. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes yes, there may be people that say they do too much, but in order to re- have the reach that they have, you ha- you can't you ha- sometimes have to do that.
1: Yeah. No, indeed. And certainly, when I was down visiting a couple of the recovery centres, I was just very impressed with um, how they how they dealt with the blokes mm-hmm. the blokes who were there blokes who came there for not not just treatment but you know a comradeship yeah yeah there were guys in there doing classes like those guys doing like fitness classes um you know sort of uh, recreation type stuff but it was all always blokes together you yeah? know mm. guys without arms guys, guys without legs and and that, that sort of um one of the things that really struck me is that sort of comradeship of those guys yeah. who were there um and i think it's an organization that is it's worth giving a shout to particularly yeah. if, you, if it's a specifically yeah. mental health thing. Um, yeah. The regiment can help you with things around housing, finance, welfare, definitely um, help heroes. And in fact, of course, many of the other military charities can help mm-hmm. you, specifically on the mental health side, most certainly.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Matt, it's been amazing talking to you, and I appreciate you coming on and spending time. Um, is there anything else you want to say?
1: Um, I, I, I don't think so, Dave. No, I, I've probably I've probably banged on uh, way too way too much. I suppose my my closing comment would be uh, I'll never forget the best RSM that I knew who's a guy called Kev Fitzgerald, who was proper old school. Um, <laughs> he handed over his RSM after Bosnia, so like 95, 96. Um uh, sadly he died last year of cancer. Really tragic. He was a great guy. But I remember when he said farewell as RSM, the whole battalion was on parade. And he uh, he was not a man of many words, but he just said, said, Right, men, said a few other things, said right. He said, The the saddest time in my career, said the worst times I've had in the army is when I've heard about blokes who've taken their own lives. He said it's it's the worst thing that's happened to me. And, you know, even this, this guy, this guy was tough as nails. He could make Chuck Norris cry. And he said, <laughs> men, he said, you got any issues, Should said, reach out and talk to someone, do something about it. Mm. And I thought that was quite interesting, you know, from an yeah. RSM who was, who was hard as nails. And that was a sort of farewell remarks of Italian. So yeah, that would be very much my sentiment to anyone out there who's, who's feeling, feeling it a bit.
0: Just fucking reach out to someone.
1: Reach out, yeah. yeah. Any of those channels. All right. Well, thanks here. very much, Dave. All right, thanks very pleasure. much. I'm sorry, I've probably gone on a bit too long, but uh, <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank and, you. And the best, best to you and all your listeners, and a happy new year. Cheers, you to yourself. Thank Cheers, you. Dave. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: And there we go. There was the first one for 2021. Again, um. Sorry about the technical issues with it But it is what it is I'll try and get better as I do more of these Online ones uh, But nothing beats doing it in person But yeah, I really appreciate, really appreciate Matt Coming on and sharing his story um, you know, and, and, and as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook If you need to get in touch with me Email me at therealpodcast.gmail.com at Until next time, lay low, move fast Stay safe, and I'll see you then